The weeks leading up to Christmas are typically referred to as Advent. And as believers, obviously, we look to the first Advent, the coming of Christ to the earth. And we look back with uh, reflection and awe and worship. But then we also look forward to the second Advent with great hope and anticipation. And today, I want us to think about this greatest story ever. Now, C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, human history is the long, terrible story of mankind trying to find something other than God to make them happy. Thanks be to God, there is a grand story, and our lives can get lost in it. And actually, when we lose ourselves in this story, we find our lives. I've got four observations I want to make this morning. Here's the first one. The story of Jesus is believable. It is believable. Rebecca McLaughlin, who was a fantastic young writer, I hope the Lord gives her many, many years, a Ph.D. from Cambridge University, uh, advanced degree in theology, a wonderful writer. And she says, and I quote, Rather than it being naive to believe that Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, it's actually naive not to. Somebody says, can I really be sure that Jesus was even here? Even unbelievers, even people who are strong atheists would say, no, I mean, obviously Jesus was here. I may not believe his claims, but he's here. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the claims of Jesus, I believe, are very, very believable. You ask, can rational, educated, 21st century people be expected to believe in supernatural stories like the resurrection or the virgin birth? Well, the Bible's very first outrageous claim is that there is one God who created the entire universe out of nothing. And if you can believe that outrageous claim, certainly you can believe that he could raise the dead and that Jesus could be born Virgin Mary. It's like saying to a weightlifter, I know that you can bench press 500 pounds, but you've proven that, but can you, can you bench press 45? <laughs> if you can create the universe out of nothing, Everything is possible from then on. You know, 40 years ago, sociologists believed that the sands were running out on religion. They said as the world becomes more and more modern, more educated, more into science, they expected religious beliefs to decline. But that prophecy has failed. Now, it is true that among Western whites... Religious participation has declined. But the proportion of people across the globe who say they believe in a creator God and they believe in the story of Jesus, it's actually increasing. Today, Christianity is the most widespread and most racially and culturally diverse belief system in the world. 31% of humanity identifies as Christian. And the church in China is growing so fast that there will be more Christians in China 
than in the United States by the year 2030. And some experts say that China could be majority Christian by the year 2060. Meanwhile, the percentage of people who say, I'm a nun or I'm a done, 16% now, and it's dropping. The sands are not running out on Christian belief. They're running in. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, just because somebody believes something or a, 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 a big group of people, just because they believe it, that, that makes it true. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you just cannot dismiss belief in the Jesus story. As some people have said, as the story goes, well, believing in science is the opposite of believing in God. That simply is not true. Princeton professor Hans Halverson says, the first modern scientists did not exclude supernatural causes from their experiments because, listen to this, they believed everything is supernaturally caused. Their question was not, is God at work here, but how is God at work in this specific situation? And today there are Christians at the forefront of every scientific field. For example, Cambridge, Cambridge University professor of experimental physics, Russell Calburn. He did not grow up going to church. As a Cambridge student, he went to London one weekend, didn't have anything to do. He went to church. Somebody invited him to a Bible study. And he said it was reading the Bible for the first time that changed everything. He went on to study physics at Cambridge, and he's now, and he's now a leading expert in nanotechnology. He says, and I quote, Some people view faith as being one explanation of the world and science as another. But I don't believe they're competing explanations. I think they're parallel explanations. And somebody says, well, how do you account for miracles or the virgin birth or the resurrection? He says, science, and I quote, science is the description of how God chooses to work most of the time. But God is sovereign and he can choose to work any way he wills. And there are special times and places where he will behave differently, the most important one being the resurrection of Jesus. We know that dead bodies don't come back to life according to science. And yet Christianity is built on the observation that Jesus came back to life. And I'm very happy to say, he says, that at that special moment, God was acting differently. As the Apostle Paul would say one time in defending his faith, he said, the Jesus story didn't happen in some corner somewhere. Investigate it. It's very, very believable. Be like the wise men and go on a diligent search. Which leads to the second point, the story of Jesus is royal. Royal. Jesus was prophesied, the Messiah is prophesied uh, as a coming king. And that's who Jesus claims to be. In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Now, some of you have been to Israel, and uh, you've seen a lot of the construction work done by Herod the Great. This is that Herod. This is Herod the Great, who was a pathetic excuse for a human being, but he was a great builder and architect. 
and he was um, paranoid. He just knew everybody was out to get him. And so after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi from the east, wise men. A lot of people think, well, there were three of them, right? Well, they brought three gifts. I think it was a sizable entourage. These were kingmakers. By the way, they came from the region of Persia and Babylon. And I believe one of the reasons why they came from that region, remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and a bunch of others were taken away into captivity. And while there, I believe, they basically started churches. They began to teach people about what's coming. That's just my thoughts. Well, these wise men come, and they're asking the legitimate question, who is the rightful king? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why, were, why was King Herod disturbed? There's a new king in town. Um, what does it mean? Not for Jesus just to be king, but for Jesus to be king in your life or mine. Back in 1922, one person wrote it like this. For Jesus to be king, that means he reigns over the minds of individuals with his teaching. He reigns in your heart by his love. And he reigns in your life as you live according to his law and as you imitate his example. That makes sense. He reigns in my mind through his teaching, reigns in my heart through his love, reigns in my life as I imitate his example and live by his commands. And somebody says, well, you know, if Jesus is here as king, his kingdom is not getting a passing grade. If he's king, why are things, why is the world still so messed up? Well, as theologians like to say, and this is true, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully here. It's already, but it's not yet. No one can deny that so much good is being done and has been done in the name of Jesus. A lot of faith, a lot of hope, a lot of love. The kingdom of God is here. It's been, listen, it's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been consummated. It's already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. We're longing for that second advent. Now, I want you to listen to this quote. One of the reasons why there are so many bitter disenfranchised people who are angry at church is because of bad theology. It's really, really important to separate your theology of the kingdom from your theology of church. These are two separate autonomous entities. Yes, there's some overlap, sometimes where the lines blur and bleed, but they're two different ideas. Jesus' ultimate goal for the universe is the kingdom. 
The kingdom is where you get the renewal of all things, where Eden is restored, where all things are made right, where the entire creation is made new. The story of the Bible climaxes and ends with heaven crashing to earth and a new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom is this huge, big theology with layers and depth and dimensions. The problem is that many people erase or ignore the theology of the kingdom, and in doing so, they pin all of their hopes and dreams on the church. And these unrealistic expectations are way too much to bear for the frail shoulders of God's bride. She was never designed to bear the weight of being the one responsible for making the world perfect. I hear people say, well, the church is God's plan to change the world. No, it's not. Jesus is God's plan to save the world. And he's bringing his kingdom. It's already started in this present age. And yes, the church is part of the plan. We're, God, we're, we're the body of Christ. We're his arms and legs. We play a part. We join and partner. But he is the one bringing the kingdom. He's the one saving the universe. We really don't, as Americans, we're not too fond of kings anyway, are we? Since 1776. Now, we, we, uh, we sort of like the royal family and uh, Prince Charles and Duchess Kate, and, and uh, we like decorator kings. But a real king who says, here's, here's the direction you need to go. So I'm going to ask you, uh, are you inviting the kingdom of God into your world? Because the story of Jesus, it is a royal story. And when Jesus is your king, here's some things that will change. You ready? Your loyalties, your values, your priorities, and your mission. This is the greatest story ever, the story of Jesus. It's a believable story. It's a royal story because Jesus is king and worthy of it. And thirdly, it's a vital story. And it's a vital story because of the unique mission of Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said this, she, that is Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. No one else can do that. No one else can fill that job description. Jesus can save his people you and me, from our sins. And my goodness, we all need some mulligans. We all need do-overs. All of us have done wrong. All of us have been wronged. And the answer to all of that is the grace available through Jesus. And I'm so thankful that he is a God of the second chances and then some. He's a God of the fresh start, a clean slate, a new chapter, a new day. You'll give him his name, Jesus. Because he'll save his people from their sins. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, Jesus came for hurting people. 
And I think sometimes when we say that, what we mean, what some people mean is, Jesus came to fix your problem. I'm not saying he doesn't care about your problems. And I'm not saying that sometimes your problem might get fixed. But if you view Jesus as the problem fixer in your life, you are going to be incredibly disillusioned. He says, you come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We find rest for our souls as our sins are forgiven. Consider the thief on the cross. His sins were forgiven. His soul was saved. Was his problem fixed? No. And the good news of Jesus Christ is it's a message of salvation for people with problems, for people who don't think they have any problems. But if you want to harden somebody's heart to the true gospel, go ahead and just tell them that Jesus will fix all your problems, and that's why he came. But if you're going to do that, you need to give them a Bible where you've etched out the story of Stephen being martyred for preaching. Go ahead and cut out the part where James was beheaded. Cut out the part where Paul and the other apostles were martyred for their faith. Cut out all the verses that speak about persevering through fiery trials of much tribulation, of the inevitability of persecution, of being hated because you claim Jesus Christ. And if you tell people that Jesus just came to fix your problems, then what they'll do is they'll, they'll ask Jesus into their heart, but they won't repent of their sin, and they'll get real angry when their problems are not fixed. The story of Jesus is vital because the great need of your life and mine is eternal salvation, and that is what he came to do. The book of Hebrews says it so well because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who's holy. He's blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the other people. He sacrificed for their sins, yours, mine, once for all, when he offered himself. And then Hebrews 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. And the reason the story of Jesus, the reason Jesus is vital, is he offered the only possible sacrifice for sin himself. Himself. Now, when I say that Jesus came for sinful people, he loves us, wants to forgive us, everybody sort of knows that out here. But you would never come to that conclusion in your heart automatically. And here's why you would, would not come to that conclusion in your heart automatically. Because you know enough of the Bible to know that God is not just holy, he's blazingly holy. There's no darkness in him. 
He is holy, righteous, above reproach. And so that's him. And so we think, well, that's so not me. So here's what happens. We sin, and then we hide from God. We sin, and we cover it up and lie about it. We sin, and we look for somebody else to blame. We sin, and we stop going to church. We sin, and we stop praying. Or worse, we get a good 15 minutes under our belt, and we start looking down our nose at somebody else. And we desperately need to hear again that Jesus Christ came for sinners. That means the ransom has been paid. The roadblocks have been removed. Yes, I need to come to the Lord in faith and repentance, but here's what I can know. A broken and contrite heart, he'll never despise. He's open to my contrite heart. He invites it, and no one never, ever need think that a cry for mercy falls on deaf ears. The story of Jesus is the greatest story ever, and it's believable. It is absolutely believable. It is vital to us. Last of all, the story of Jesus, it's both personal and communal. Both personal and communal. In other words, it's important that we have a personal relationship with the Lord, but not a private one. Now, I want to read a couple of passages of Scripture. First of all, John 3. For God so loved the world, and the reason there it says world and not everybody's name is that there's no room to spell out everybody's name. I read it like this. For God so loved Ronnie that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Have you personally welcomed the story of Jesus into your life, responded to him in faith, been baptized in his name, following him? But this story is also communal. It's mutual. It's relational. Remember one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel? And you remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. Not God with me. God with us. Verse 23 of Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. My friends, keep encouraging one another. Get together, be together. If you can't do it in person, find ways. Use, make, that, make that telephone, make that computer holy and, and encourage, encourage one another. Our faith, our motivation, our spirits are sustained through the practice of gathering. As we gather, we look one another in the eye and we remind each other of God's faithfulness 
to his people. The church is the body of Christ. And the body has the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, not exclusively, but the Holy Spirit ministers to you through the ministry of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me say a little something. You know I love you. You know I care. I would never ever, and I'm I'm speaking to those of you on camera too, I would never ever push you to do something that's not safe for you, okay? And I would never ever push you to do something that you just don't feel good about in your spirit and your conscience, okay? I would, however, push you to get beyond your I'm too comfortable zone, all right? And I realize that house coat church can be fun. And, uh, but let me encourage you. And again, you got no judgment for me coming here. And, and no explanations are necessary. But if you find yourself in that, you know, I've gotten a little too comfortable zone, let me give you a little love nudge to be with the family of God in person, all right? Now, uh, you become a Christian, you're a a believer. There you go. But I I want you to have a vision for yourself that you're not just a believer, but you're going to keep growing and maturing and go beyond a believer to be an an example. And not just an example, but to keep maturing and be an impact player. The kind of person that's a pillar person in a ministry. Believer, yes, but example and impact player. That's the kind of person you want to be. All right, I want to close with a little quote here from Louis Giglio where he says, Life is the tale of two stories, one finite and frail and the other eternal and enduring. Brother Don, you can come on up and be ready to lead us in prayer. The tiny one, the story of us, is brief as the blink of an eye. Yet somehow our infatuation with our own little story and our determination to make it as big as we possibly can, it blinds us to the massive God story that surrounds us on every side. We can choose to cling to the starring roles in the little bitty stories of us, or we can exchange our fleeting moment in the spotlight for a supporting role in the eternally beautiful epic that is the story of God. It's the greatest story ever. It's believable. It's royal and regal. It is vital. It's personal. And it's communal. So believe it. Live in it. Rejoice in this story. Joy to the world. For the Lord has come. And he is coming again.